Welcome to the Convergence Church Podcast. Our vision at Convergence is to encounter Jesus and transform cities with His power and His love. If you'd like more information about Convergence and how to plug in, you can visit convergencechurch.com. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy this message. I have the awesome honor. This is my brother, first of all. And if you've been here for a while, some of you, you're newer faces, and so you don't, you don't know him, but um, he used to, used to be a huge part of this body, uh, help, was leading worship, was helping with the youth, doing all sorts of things, and even doing some revival meetings um, called Flood, which was really amazing and deeply impactful. And so I, I just, I'm so honored to have him here um, as a brother, but also as a teacher. David is a teacher. He can teach the word like few people I know. Um, I aspire to be as good of a teacher as he does. Uh, but I'm just deeply thankful for him. He and Madison and just their whole family are amazing. They're at New River Fellowship. They're in Hudson Oaks. And David is the, uh, is it the pa- spiritual formation director, pastor, all of it? All of it. Okay. Director, pastor, he leads worship. He's amazing. So can we just honor him that he's here this morning? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and just just extend your hands, Lord. We just thank you. We thank you for David. Lord, we thank you for David and Madison. And um, one of the things that I felt over you, David, as you came that I've already kind of told you is that I felt like the Lord was unlocking fresh places of the revivalist that's within you. I really felt like, even in like, what message do you bring? I felt like I was supposed to pull on your history with the Holy Spirit. Because I feel like there's a season where the Lord is saying there's a fresh season coming where he's going to awaken that revivalist to another degree, to another place. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the fire that you put in his heart. We bless Madison, even just the fire that she carries, the fire that their family carries. We thank you, Lord, that even in a season of transition, Lord, I just thank you that you're planting them and that this is a season of springboarding into new things, into more. And so we just thank you, we honor them, and we thank you for all that you have. And everybody said amen. Amen. Wow, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm I'm, uh, honored to honored to be here and just honored to see everybody honored to be here with my amazing wife Madison um sometimes I feel like you know the the songs where you look at the song and it says so and so and it says featuring so and so I feel like every time I minister with my wife I'm kind of the featuring you know it just means like that person sings three words at the end and so they get their name on it you know um I feel like a a nice bonus for for what we've already experienced and And I'm happy about that. Well, hey, um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 24. Psalm Psalm 24. And we'll see if I have a keynote here. I don't see it yet. And we'll read that. We will read that together in just a moment. Thankful for all the teams that serve here. Oh, hey, there we are. Let's go back a little bit. Okay, Psalm 24, starting in verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? 
Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Let's pray one more time. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome your presence. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you this morning? Lord, I just am so conscious of the fact that I don't have the, the words that, that have life. Jesus, you said your words are spirit and they are life. And so would you speak this morning? And Holy Spirit, would you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, and that we would know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power towards those who believe. So help us. Help me, Lord. I need your strength. I need wisdom. I need guidance. Lord, we, we need you. We are desperately in need of your leadership this morning, Holy Spirit. So we give you the room and we give you leadership over this time in this space. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is one of my favorite verses, and, and really, I, I don't have a, a flashy sermon this morning. Really, all, all I want to do is just walk us through this passage line by line. Um, and I feel like there's three kind of movements. But what I, what I want to say more than anything is that as you hear these questions ring off the page, right, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, I'm going to talk in just a little bit about how, how this has everything to do with uh, how we can come into a deeper encounter with the presence of God. But when you see the questions ring off the page, first and foremost, um, I hope you hear underneath the surface, the answer to these questions, which in first place is Jesus. Yes. The, the first context of this passage, before we get into how, how it applies to us, is that the one who ascended the mountain of the Lord and stood in his holy place was Jesus. And so when we talk about how this applies to us, what it's not going to be is how can I get back on the religious wagon and I really got to climb up the mountain and try to get to the Lord. I want you to remember the entire time as we're thinking that Jesus is the primary context, one of the whole Old Testament, amen. Um, and so that applies here, that, that he's the one who perfectly ascended the mountain of the Lord, who stood in the holy place. He's the only one in history who had clean hands and a pure heart. Did you know that? Yeah. He's the, o- the only person in history who's actually done this was Jesus. Now, as we move in, how does it apply to us then? Uh, Jesus calls us to imitate him, to follow him. And so there's a way in which we follow him, and he guides us up the mountain of the Lord. Um, and it's by grace. It's by the, the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. So I, I want to keep that in mind, that our access to the pre- presence of God comes uh, because of the finished work of Jesus. But I see three movements um, in this passage, and I just want to tell you what those are before we do them. There's three movements here. It's consecration, adoration, and pursuit. This is what we're going to walk through in this passage, consecration, adoration, and pursuit. So initially, we talk about consecration, right? 
Who, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, I don't know where you're coming uh, here background-wise, and the word consecration is definitely a really Christian-y sounding word, isn't it? It's kind of a big, maybe intimidating word. And whenever we talk about consecration or holiness, uh, depending on what your background is, uh, you might get this sense that that kind of kills the mood. Like, if the pastor is going to talk about consecration, consecration is when God gets really mad and says that you need to be better, right? I'm, the pastor's calling for consecration, which means, like, whatever it is, you're doing good, you're not doing it enough. And whatever it is, you're doing bad, stop it, right? And that's kind of like consecration, holiness. It can feel like that, can it? Like, we can get that, that sense. But when you look at consecration in the Old Testament... I'll just give you the most basic definition, which is to be associated with the sacred or to be set apart for the sacred. And, and the reason that that whole idea of holiness and consecration is wrong is when you look in the Old Testament, uh, there's garments that are consecrated. There's utensils that are consecrated. So you can imagine the priest, right? If we think about how we imagine consecration, you imagine the priest walking into the temple and here's all the utensils and looking at the utensils like, have you been good this week? Have you been really consecrated? Right? The point is the, the utensils can't act. The reason they're set apart is because they were only used in the presence of the Lord in the temple. So that's what consecration, when we think about consecration, I don't want you to jump to uh, how good or bad have you been this week. I want you to jump to completely and totally set apart. So the psalmist is saying if you want to experience the presence of God, you're going to have to live from a different operating system to the world. Clean hands and a pure heart is not the default operating system that you see in culture, right? And, and, you, and you think about clean hands and a pure heart. What's, what's so deep and probing about this passage is that it deals with our actions and our motives, right? Clean hands is what you do, but a pure heart is the motives by which you do things. And so he's saying there's clean hands and a pure heart. That's, con that's what consecration is. The problem is that for a long time in the church, we've kind of tried to figure out the nice blend of how to follow Jesus uh, and also blend in nicely. Like, anybody ever tried that experiment? Like, like, come on, you've been in your workplace, you've been in your school, you're like, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm also not going to rock the boat because I just don't, I don't have it in me this morning, I don't have the energy to try to stick out from what's going on uh, in the crowd. We don't want to stand out. And the thing is, um, in many environments that maybe you've been in, that's worked because we've lived in a culture that, just making a generalization, has generally been positive towards Christians, has been generally been positive towards uh, faith. And I'm so grateful and thankful for that heritage uh, of our country. But I just want to tell you that that's not universal and that you might not always be planted in, a, in a, uh, a culture or in an environment where it's like, oh, it's, you know, after the football game, the football coach comes up and everybody from the bleachers comes down to the middle of the field. We all pray together. And I love that. And that's beautiful. And so in that environment, you can kind of follow Jesus and you don't have to rock the boat. But I'm just telling you, you might not always be planted in a place where it's God bless America and the seventh inning stretch and going down to the 50-yard line uh, with your high school football coach and praying and all that kind of stuff, as good as that is. There's probably going to come a moment where consecration is going to look like standing out from the people in the culture that's around you. It's going to look like living life from a different operating 
system. There is a point where it actually might become a net negative to be a follower of Jesus for, for whatever you're, wherever you're placed. And there, there are brothers and sisters all over the world where in that environment and culture, there, it's not a positive. You don't win points. Like there's still areas, right, where, um, where putting I'm a Christian on like my job or, you know, talking about an interview, that would be like a plus, right? There are places where it's not a plus, where it's a net negative. And the reason I say that is that changes the way that you and I operate when it comes to having clean hands and a pure heart. And so I had a statement that I wrote down today that I want to say, and it's this. Cultural Christianity is not dying. It's already dead. It's, it's already dead. There, there is a sense in which what you've seen of this idea that I can, because everyone's a Christian, right, I can kind of just live my life in this lane, not stand out, not have to be consecrated, not have to live in radical holiness, all of that. It's, it's not that that's going to die. It's that it, it's been dead the whole time. There's never been life in cultural Christianity. And so if you live in this way, this operating system that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 24, you may become that Christian. Anybody, anybody ever been known as that Christian? You go to Convergence, so maybe people say you go to that church. Like, oh yeah, you go to that church. Okay, right? You, you might have to endure that for a little bit. Watchman Nee always used to say, by the, the time the average Christian gets his temperature up to normal, everyone thinks he has a fever. There's a sense in which what normal Christianity in coming days may start to look like weird Christianity. Because, because when lukewarmness becomes normal, then the burning ones begin to look abnormal. And, and what I'm not saying, listen to me, I'm not coming in here prophesying doom and gloom, everything's going to go. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is you may be in environments where, and Jesus, by the way, openly says, Paul says this in 2 Timothy, in the last days there will be people who congregate in rooms just like the one we're in, listening to sermons, and, and, and Paul says clearly to Timothy, all they're going to want to do is have their ears tickled. There's a tickling of the ears. Now, there's also going to be radical proclamation of the gospel all the way up until the Lord returns, and so that's not all there's going to be, but there will be a clear contrast and delineation between those two forms of following Jesus. So God pours out his spirit on those who have set themselves apart completely for his purposes. That is what consecration is. If you look at moves of God throughout history, this has always been true. There has always been a setting apart or a consecration of people that produced, in some sense, uh, produces not the right word, but made way for the Lord to pour out his spirit. I think about the Welsh revival of 1904, 1905. If you don't know anything about the revival in Wales that occurred in the beginning of the 20th century, basically to oversimplify, um, in a matter of months, in a matter of weeks, almost an entire nation was saved. And we, we saw this. This is not that far removed from the time that you and I are living in. I just want to remind you, God has done this. Like when we talk about outpourings of the Spirit, if we talk about revival um, we don't have to talk in these theoretical terms, well, what if this could happen? Because God's already done it. And, and that prayer of Habakkuk, right, it's so good. He's like, God, renew your works in our time. That's what Habakkuk prayed in Habakkuk chapter 3. Like, God, what you've done, do it again. God has already done this. But what you saw is the Holy Spirit is poured out in the nation of Wales and taverns shut down. And uh, what, what happened, this is, what I think, the most remarkable thing. 
They had to start laying off police officers because there was no crime. And there's a, there's a great story about um, the, the judges were, had a really boring life because there was no criminal cases for months and months on end. No criminal cases. But one time there was one crime that was committed and the criminal came before the judge and the man that was writing about the experience uh, says that at the end of uh, that proceeding, uh, the jury was singing a hymn and the judge was leading the criminal to Christ. Like, can you imagine? Right? The, the coal miners, uh, where, where this revival was taking place in Wales, was a heavy coal mining uh, economy. And the coal miners were so foul-mouthed um, that their animals would only respond to profanity, which means that when the revival took place, they had to retrain all of the animals um, because the animals would only answer to profanity. And because the coal miners stopped using profanity, they had to retrain all of the animals. Right? So you get a sense for the incredible scope of this move of God. But if you know anything about it and you know how it started, it started very simply um, with an uneducated coal miner named uh, Evan Roberts. And he stood up and he prayed this prayer. And if you could just learn this prayer. He got up and he prayed, Lord, bend me. Lord, bend me. And a nation was changed. That is consecration. The prayer of consecration is this, Lord, bend me. And the problem is that many of us want to experience a move of God, but we want God to bend to us. And we want to make treaties with God, and we want fair terms, but to be consecrated and to live with clean hands and pure heart in a time of deep darkness, it means being bent by God. It means being broken by God. It means that we stop pushing our term sheet across the table at God, and we begin to say, God, I agree with what you're doing. Bend me, God. Bend me to your purpose. Bend me to your will. It means being set apart in such a way that you're exposed just like Jesus was exposed on the cross. That place of arms open where you say, God, whatever it looks like, whatever it is, I'm going there. Clean hands, pure heart. Consecration. But you're going to stand out. And as I think about what it looks like to stand out, what it looks like to be consecrated, I think about a trip that uh, my dad was on. We were in uh, Mozambique uh, with Heidi and Iris. And we were able, we had this amazing blessing to get in this little Iris prop plane. Um, it was brand new at the time. And we flew, my dad and I flew with a couple other people to Malawi, which is just a small country that's over there bordering uh, Mozambique. And we, we had these uh, crusades that we were doing. And now, I don't, I don't know if I need to say this this morning, but I don't look uh, remotely African. Um, and so we stroll into uh, Malawi, and we begin to worship with these amazing people. And I love, I love worshiping in Africa. I love it in spite of how God's made me. Um, because in Africa... Worship is coordinated, and like people's hips are moving, and it's a whole thing, and it's there's dancing, and it's, none of that comes naturally to me. Like they're moving back and forth. I, I kind of just like, you know, like I can't, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And so after uh, the first worship service, one of the first worship services was done, um, my dad sends me this picture, and I think in your life and in my life, this is probably what consecration is sometimes going to look like. Look at this. Let's see if we got it here. 
it's safe to say that I don't blend in in the crowd. And, and, and there's a sense in which consecration is going to sometimes feel like that. Living with clean hands, living with a pure heart. Again, I keep repeating this, but it's not the default operating system, which means it's going to feel abnormal. It's going to feel like a shift. It's going to feel like a change. There's going to be crowds that you're going to stand out in. There's going to be environments that you're going to stand out in. But I want to be clear about something. Consecration is not about running away from the fight. And if I could just speak to maybe the specifics of what I feel like our context is here, North Texas, there's a lot of people in here, a lot of people in these environments where maybe we live in kind of suburban environments. And what's the suburban ethos, right? It's like, give me my plot of land with my house, and I'm going to build a 19-foot privacy fence on all sides, and like, that's my compound, and I live here, and you don't come here, and I don't come there, and we build our privacy fences, right? And again, I thank God for privacy fences, especially when you got, like, mean dogs on the other side of the fence. Amen? Anybody? Yeah. That's, it's good. It's positive. But my point is that can, that can create something in us that says, all I need is my little privacy fence and my little walls and make sure that nobody comes back. And what are you doing? You're reversing the Great Commission. If I could only get away, consecration looks like me building my privacy fence and staying away from the bad people, right? But Jesus uh, didn't call us to be set apart by fleeing the world. And, and if you look, by the way, the only prayer Jesus ever prays specifically for us in the Bible, um, I don't know where, I, I feel like there's a lot of people who didn't get the memo on this one. The only time Jesus prays specifically for you and for me with words that we can read, he says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. Jesus is like, I'm praying specifically for you, Nikki. Father, I do not ask that you take Nikki out of the world. Man, and it's sometimes like, wait, that would be so nice, though. If you could just take me out, like, beam me up, Scotty. Like, did God just get, get me out? And Jesus, Jesus says specifically, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And so the operating system of believers is not to set up our privacy fences and to say that consecration looks like me not mingling with everybody else around me. What it looks like is going in the midst of the darkness, going in the midst of the brokenness, going in the midst of perversion and sin and all of that kind of stuff. You are called to live in the midst of it and to shine in the midst of it. Not to be set apart from the world, but to be set apart in the world. That is what consecration looks like. Centuries later, there was a pretty wise man who said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Notice the echoes. It's, it's, very, it's very probable that Jesus is echoing Psalm 24 in the Sermon on the Mount. Because what do we read? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So consecration actually opens our eyes to see God. So if the pure in heart are those who see God, then what that also means is any impurity in our heart will block our vision of God. And so, if we're unwilling to eliminate the things that are contaminating our hearts, we will be unable to see God. So the question is, what, what possibly could be contaminating our hearts? Look at the next verse. It says, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Some of your translations will just say, well, uh, doesn't swear falsely. Um, but I think the, uh, this is the NIV here. I think that the likely translation there is that this actually has to do with the ancient practice of swearing by an idol. 
And so I think that's the, that's the good translation here would be who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Now, idolatry. It, it's a phrase that feels like out there and it feels like I would, I would never be involved in idolatry, right? Because you think of like, you know, over there in, you know, Crowley or wherever you live, Fort Worth, in your backyard, you know, you're like building a giant golden calf and bowing down to it. You're like, I don't do that. Um, but idolatry is much more uh, subtle than that. I love, I, love the way, um, I love the way Tozer says it here. He says, let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. The essence, get this, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. See, when I think of idolatry as me building a golden calf in my backyard, then I don't have any problem with that. But if I, if I think of idolatry as the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him, then that can creep into my life and it can creep into your life. There are thoughts that I have. They're not, listen, it's not even bad thoughts about God. It's thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And so if, I, if, I, if, if, if God's provider, and I don't trust him as provider, that's idolatry because he's stated who he is. Right? And so that's idolatry. You're like, whoa, that, 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 that flips the script, right? Because we don't think of idolatry in that way, but it's subtle. And so when the psalmist says that the one who has clean hands is also the one who does not trust in an idol, we have to figure out what an idol is. I love uh, Tim Keller's definition of an idol. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. There have been seasons of my life where some eight-season Netflix show has absorbed my heart and imagination more than God. There have been seasons of my life where relationships and friendships have absorbed my heart and my imagination more than God. And what the psalmist is saying is that what that actually is, more than just maybe, oh, I should probably stop watching Netflix, it's, there's a deeper issue, which is what? I'm trusting in an idol. Idolatry is misplaced worship. That's all it is, misplaced worship. It's about adoration. We think about, what's the first commandment? This is so, this is so important because it gets to the heart of everything. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Did you know it's impossible to break one of the Ten Commandments? You can only break two or more at a time. This is why the first commandment is first. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Everything else that follows in the Ten Commandments, you must have another god before you in order, in order to do it. So if God says, do not commit adultery, and I commit adultery... The first sin was not the adultery. The first sin was that I had another God before God. Why? Because when God says, hey, which by the way, all of the commands of God in the Old Testament, you read, 
Read Psalm 119. That will restructure your approach to the commands of God. Because the psalmist in Psalm 119 is like, your law is like honey to me. It's sweeter than honey on my lips. And you're like, wait a second. The law that says you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not. The psalmist is like, I delight in your law. And by the way, the new, the new covenant is when the Spirit comes and writes God's law in your heart. Not when the Spirit uh, comes into you and teaches you to break God's law. That's just, that's not, it's so foreign from anything that the Holy Spirit does, anything that the grace of God does. The point is, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, he accomplishes the law of God on your behalf. And he produces righteousness in you so that it is not your works and it's not your merit, it's not your strength and it's not your skill and it's not your ability that's accomplishing this. But most often the little G God that we place before the big G God is not a golden calf or a Hindu deity or Zeus or Poseidon. It's the God known as self. So Eugene Peterson talked about the, the, the modern trinity, the modern, uh, trinity that replaces the trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the trinity of my wants, my needs, and my desires. And we're trapped in that cycle. If I pursue fame and career and success, the deepest sin wasn't even greed. It was making money a god. Notice that when Jesus speaks about money, he does not speak about money as a thing. He speaks about money as a god. Mammon. Do you know that mammon was a god? So Jesus understands idolatry, and so he speaks to the core, and he doesn't say, money's evil, don't have any of it. He says, listen, don't trust in mammon. It's, a, it's always a worship issue. Why? Because your heart was built to worship. And so you have to worship something. There's an atheist author named David Foster Wallace, and he was giving, he's not a Christian, he was giving a, a commencement address, and he famously said these words. He said, everyone worships something. This is an atheist. He said, everyone worships something. He understood, despite the contradiction in his heart, he understood that you were designed and built to worship something. And so if your worship is not directed to Yahweh, if it's not directed to the one true God, it will be misdirected to other things and other people. So every time we live in disobedience to God's commands, we are in effect saying, I'm a better God than God. And that's idolatry. And our passage says that those who experience the presence of God are those who do not trust in idols. The problem is that idols are subtle. And they take root in different ways. And I, I, this concept might be new to you, but I want to unpack it really briefly. Um, and it's an idea that's, that's called four-source idols. The idea behind this, um, there's so many other ways that uh, this has been stated throughout the years, so it's not some new thing. But the idea is this that you and I tend to focus uh, on our behavior, right? And we all know the, the, the concept when it comes to disease, right? We all know the idea of treating symptoms instead of treating the disease, yeah. right? And there are entire aspects of the way certain cultures of medicine have been built up where they're built around treating symptoms and not treating diseases. And so idolatry is about getting to the disease. So the four source idols, the idea behind this is that everything in our life that's taking us out of consecration, that's taking us out of clean hands and a pure heart, actually comes down to one of four source idols that we're trusting in some way in our hearts, and they're these. Power, comfort, approval, and control. Power, comfort, approval, and control. Now, we keep looking at the service behaviors, right? I lied again, I went to that website again, uh, I betrayed a friend again, I yelled at my kids again, and what are we doing? We are playing spiritual whack-a-mole. You know whack-a-mole, right? Pops up over here. You get it. 
but then you don't win, right? And there's another one over here, and you got to come over here. I've told the story before, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to out my father who's in the room, but uh, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. One, I thought it was a little strange that my parents had four kids until I grew up and I saw the amount of yard work, and I was like, this is a good idea. He had three boys. That means you mow here, you weed eat over here, you mow. It's, that's nice. That's a good setup. But my section of mowing in the front yard, um, I'll just say it, there was quite a few weeds. It's just the truth. I, I love you, Dad. There's just, there was quite a, few, there's qu- quite a few weeds. Now, I did not re- in a really thorough way go through and just one by one pick all the weeds. What did I do? I set that mower as low as I can get, and you mow over the top of it, right? Why? Because for like three days, it's going to look good. Now, on day three, there's like, and like just like straight, I don't know how how it happens with weeds, right? It's like for two days, they're gone, and the third day, it's just bam, they're full. And what do you do after that? You mow the weeds again. So the point is, when you and I experience that kind of sin and dysfunction in our lives, most of the time, many of us are mowing the weeds. We're not pulling them out from the root. We're mowing the weeds. And many times it has to do with religious performance. This is what Jesus talks about to the Pharisees, right? It's like you clean the outside, but the inside of the cup is filthy. You're whitewashed tombs. This is what Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees. And so I think the Holy Spirit might want to be highlighting this morning some of the idols that we might be trusting. And I'll I'll go quickly here. Um, If we're trusting in the idol of power, here's what we'll do. We will push anyone and everyone down around us until we're on top. We will utilize money and resources as a means to climb the ladder. We will be tormented by the fact that someone else is higher, more powerful, more attractive, more successful. That's the idol of power. Now, if we're trusting in the idol of comfort, we will manipulate our circumstances to protect our bubble of comfort. We will leave wounding and trauma unaddressed by avoiding conflict. No one in here has ever avoided conflict. I'm I'm the only one. We will use money to buy things we don't need that comfort us. Listen, there are people in this room, there are people, all all of us, where you've experienced something where you can't stop spending money. Like there's people in this room, like you've experienced, and you know it's not like, it's not just some normal thing. You're like, I have to buy things. The problem is, if you just say, I'm a greedy person, I need to deal with my greed, you don't understand, is it power, comfort, approval, or control that's driving that? See, because if it's power, I'm going to use my money to accumulate things that will give me power and status over other people. But if it's comfort, and there's people in this room who've experienced this, where you buy things in order to keep yourself comfortable. There's like something simmering. There's like something simmering under the surface. Like I have to buy something in order to maintain a certain level of comfort. We'll use money to buy things we don't need. We'll have one more drink because I deserve it and it calms me down. We'll click on that website because the men or women in the videos offer their bodies to us freely and they never say no and they never require sacrifices and they calm us down. That's the idol of comfort. If we're trusting in the idol of approval, we will live desperately trying to surround ourselves with people who affirm and validate us. The, the idol of approval, I think, is one of the foremost idols of our time. This moment in culture where I cannot exist unless you affirm me. I cannot operate in my life. I cannot have a sense of security and identity without your validation and your approval. We'll experience incredible highs when we're validated and incredible lows when we aren't. We will use money to spoil those around us in the hopes that they'll never leave us. We'll experience an incredible fear of missing out, of being left out, or being excluded. That's the idol of approval. 
Finally, if we're trusting in the idol of control, we will engineer our lives so that everything flows back to us. You'll make sure that you have your hands in every pie, that you have uh, your opinion in every conversation. We'll systematically eliminate people who challenge us or call us out. We will manipulate and manipulate and manipulate until people fall in line. What's the point? Every one of these idols is trying to do something for you that only God can do. So, what does that mean? It's not a behavior issue. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. It's idolatry. So, how do we deal with source idols? If you're struggling this morning and you're realizing that it's power, comfort, approval, or control, how do you deal with source idols? The first thing I would say is this. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the beauty of Jesus. See, because if you know one of the main idols in the Old Testament... If you remember the story in 1 Samuel 5 um, of Dagon, Dagon was a Philistine idol. What's interesting, though, is that the Israelites don't put a group of soldiers together and storm the temple of Dagon and cut the idol down. Do you know? I don't know if you remember the story. What happens is the Philistines bring the ark into Dagon's temple, and Dagon falls down. So the point is not that you and I in our hearts would try to storm the temple of Dagon by force and try to, I'm going to rip down the idol of approval and comfort and control. What's the point? You have to get the ark in. What does that mean? You have to get the presence of God. You have to have a living experience in the deepest core of who you are with the presence and beauty of Jesus. And what happens in that moment is Dagon will fall down. And then the beauty of that story too is they tried to put Dagon back up. But because the ark was still in there, he fell down again. And the next time, his hands and his head were cut off. And so I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, there's idols in our hearts, and, we, and now you need to, like, buy some book or do some checklist or do some 12-step plan. What do you have to do? You have to just get the ark in. You have to get the beauty of Jesus in such a way where the idols lose their seductive appeal to your heart. So adoration, worshiping God for who he is, experiencing his presence, breaks the power of our deep-seated idols. Okay. We're almost going to close here. Psalm 24, 5 and 6. Here's how it ends. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Some of your translations might say, this is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, God of Jacob. So when we set ourselves apart and when we tear down the idols in our hearts, when we worship Jesus above all else, God sends blessing and vindication, and you have amazing pastors and leaders, leaders so you know that blessing in, in the first place has very little to do with, with the things that you have, right? The ultimate blessing that God can give is himself, and it's a blessing that can't be taken from you. The, the people who live unshakable in the world are the people who know that the ultimate blessing is God himself. Remember when God meets with Abram in Genesis, what does he say? He's like, I'm going to use you to, to bring redemption to the entire human race, right? He says, through your seed, all nations in the earth will be blessed. I'm going to use you as the focal point of my redemptive purpose in the earth. And then, he's, and then he's like, hey, you know what your reward will be? Me. He tells Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So that blessing, that vindication is not, if you have clean hands and a pure heart, God's going to give you a boat and a coat. 
That's not it. I hope you get a boat and a coat, but don't associate that with the blessing of God because then when you pass through a season of scarcity or pass through a season of hardship, you will become bitter towards God because you've associated his blessing with material things, with, a, with some kind of physical abundance. And if you make that connection, it's very difficult to break it. And I've seen people promise time and time again that if you follow Jesus, he will ensure that all of your material circumstances turn out for absolute, like, capital gains in every area of your life. And so what happens is when that inevitably doesn't happen, the people who are taught that this is what Jesus gives, like, it's, a, it's, it's transactional. If you give your life to Jesus, he will give you this. And here's what happens. When that doesn't come, when and how that person thought, they will just throw aside the Jesus stuff altogether. Yeah. Why? Because this is not the bargain I signed up for. Whereas if you come from Abraham's, from Abram's perspective, that he's your exceedingly great reward, then in the midst of tribulation and trial and scarcity and any kind of pain or traumatic season that you could be going through, you'll say, I have blessing and vindication from God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got to move on from that. So here's where I want to close. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Consecration, adoration, and pursuit. Now, the word face in Hebrew means presence. The word face is the Hebrew word for presence. So he's saying this is what a generation who seeks the presence of God looks like. Some of your translations might say this is the generation. What that doesn't mean in the original language is like there's one generation and this is the one. He's saying this is what a generation who seeks God looks like. That's why other translations say such is the generation who seeks his presence. Now, I want you to look if you can see that that verse in your Bible or whatever you have in front of you, I want you to notice how um, towards the end, and this might differ based on translation, it says, God of Jacob. Now, this is a very strange text in Hebrew because the words God of are not there. And the sentence ends extremely abruptly, and I'll tell you how it literally reads in Hebrew. It reads like this. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. And so this has puzzled interpreters and commentators for, for years about how, what, what's the word Jacob just doing tacked on. And so some have suggested, which is not a bad suggestion, that, that it's God of Jacob. But, then, but, but the question is, why is Jacob just stuck on the end? What, what does Jacob have to do with any of this? What, why is Jacob just being thrown onto this verse? And that's why one uh, Old Testament scholar named uh, Derek Kidner suggested this, that really the way we should read this is, such is the generation of those who seek your face like Jacob sought your face. And if that's the case, then it begs the question, how did Jacob seek God? And so I want to just end as, as we prime our hearts for what the Lord might want to do. Uh, I want to end with Genesis 32. I got to move quickly. It says, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives. That's one wife too many, by the way. His two female <laughs> servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, to make a long story short, we know that the man that Jacob was wrestling with was not a man, but was God himself. And I want you to just let your imagination begin to fill that scene in in your mind 
of Jacob wrestling with God. And I want you to think just briefly about the story of Jacob's life, if you remember it. Jacob's name literally means one who supplants, one who manipulates, one who deceives. Jacob's identity is wrapped around coercion and obtaining things by his own cunning and his own talent and his own will. His entire identity is wrapped up in that, and it's worked for his entire life up until this moment. For Jacob's entire life, through his own merit, through his own cunning, through his own skill, through his own charisma, he has been able to successfully wrench a blessing and inheritance out from under the nose of his father and his brother. He's been able to live his life on his own terms. He gets whatever he wants, when he wants it, and he's running around. And finally, he wrestles with this man. And I love the way that Frederick Buechner describes the scene. He says this, the darkness had faded just enough so that for the first time he can dimly see his opponent's face. And what he sees is something more terrible than the face of death, the face of love. It is vast and strong, half ruined with suffering and fierce with joy. The face a man flees down all the darkness of his days until at last he cries out, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Not a blessing that he can have now by the strength of his cunning or the force of his will, but a blessing that he can only have as a gift. Because if you hear that phrase, I will not let you go unless you bless me, doesn't that, that sounds kind of arrogant at first, doesn't it? It feels wrong. Like, you can't talk to God that way. What's the point, though? It wasn't arrogance. It was desperation. And there's a difference. God never blesses arrogance, but he can't resist desperation. Because arrogance demands something from God, but desperation just says, I can't live without your presence. What Jacob is not doing here, if you understand the story of Jacob's life, this is a miracle because Jacob, for the first time his entire life, is looking at God face to face and saying, you have what I need and I can't get it by my own works, by my own strength, by my own cunning. You have to give it to me. You got, I got to lay it down. That is desperation. And every revival in the history of the church has happened because someone somewhere got desperate enough to wrestle with God. Desperation means that we've come to the end of our capacity to strive, to will, to manipulate, to coerce. Like Jacob, we may have been able to grab a blessing here and there by the force of our charisma and wit and talent. But when we wrestle with God, we realize that God won't be overpowered by the force of our will. And here's what happens. God touches the socket of Jacob's hip and he gives him a limp so that Jacob will always have to lean on him for his entire life. And what God longs to do in some of us this morning is to touch the socket of our hip and to break our self-sufficiency and to break that idea that we've had in our, in, our, in our hearts and in our minds that if I don't do it, it won't get done. And that if I don't take care of myself, it won't happen. If, if I don't provide for myself, I won't be provided for. That the place of desperation is, is the, face where, uh, the place where we've laid all of that down and we look upon the face of the one that we've been wrestling with. And here's what we say. I won't let you go unless you bless me. In other words, I won't let you go until you give me what only you can give me, what I tried to get from other places and I couldn't get, what I tried to satisfy with other pleasures and other things and I couldn't get. You have to give it to me or I'm gone. It's like what Moses says, unless, unless your presence goes with us, he said in Exodus 33, don't lead us up from here. Let us die in the desert. That's what Moses is saying. So that's desperation. Desperation is the recognition that we're fully and totally dependent on the grace of God. So Psalm 24 says that those who seek his face will seek him like Jacob. 
And so how in your own life, how in my life am I seeking God like Jacob with that desperate longing, that lovesick longing, that wrestling, that contending, that travail, that, that worshiping like nobody else is in the room? How, how is that, that spirit that animated Jacob in that moment, is that on my life right now? Such is the generation of those who seek him. I think revival would sweep across this entire region if one entire church were to simultaneously grab a hold of God and say, I won't let you go until you bless me. What would happen? Where you're just like, we're not, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. You come to that place of, of desperation where you say, I'm not leaving until you bless me. I think about the woman with the issue of blood. It's the last, last verse we'll look at. It says, when she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. The story of Jacob, the story of the bleeding woman, they're the same story. There's a story of two people who are so desperate that they realize that if they do not touch God, if they do not touch God, if they do not touch the one whose presence is fullness of joy, the one whose presence is abundance, the one whose presence is life, if they do not touch him, if they cannot grab a hold of him, then life has no meaning, then life has no purpose. And so the bleeding woman and Jacob, they're really saying the same thing. They're really both saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then what happens? This is where I wanna end. It says, power went out from Jesus. Desperation always attracts the power and the resources of heaven. It was the desperation of the woman to grab a hold of the garment of Jesus, and it says power went out from Jesus. And Jesus longs to pour his power out upon this house and upon this place. But he's looking for people that would grab a hold of his garment this morning. And I love that, I love that it said that she came up behind him. You think about the shame that this woman was carrying. She doesn't even want Jesus to see her. So that detail is so important. She comes up behind him. And maybe that you're in this room and there's, there's been just, just a shame where you're like, I don't, I don't even feel like I can come face to face with Jesus and grab a hold of his garment. I, I'm the one. But I just want to tell you, even if you're the one that's coming, trying to come up from behind Jesus, if you grab a hold of him this morning, you will experience the power and the presence that he longs for you to experience this morning. Why don't you stand up? And I just want to, I want to declare some things uh, over you. It says, such is the generation. I just want to declare, this is the generation of those who seek him. This is the generation of those who seek God like Jacob sought God, wrestling with God and walking with a limp. This is the generation of those who seek God like the bleeding woman sought God, pressing through the crowds to grab his garment. This is the generation of those who seek God like Evan Roberts sought, sought God, crying out for God to bend him like a tree in a hurricane. This is the generation of those who seek God at Convergence Church in Fort Worth, Texas in 2023 during the chaos of political upheaval uh, in the midst of soccer practices and baseball tournaments, right in the thick of struggling marriage and broken friendships and deconstructed spiritualities. There are men and women who are desperate enough to cry out, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
And so I want to just make space. If you just hold out your hands like you're receiving a gift, just as we end here, I want, I want to give you space to pray three prayers. A prayer of consecration, a prayer of repentance, and a prayer of pursuit. That prayer of consecration, I just, I hear that prayer of Evan Roberts so strongly, bend me, God. There's, there's a fresh grace in this room this morning for you to look at God and say, God, bend me. And maybe there's been places in your life where you've been unwilling to bend and unwilling to yield. And you said, God, to this point and no further. And God's saying, hey, I have those places and I'm here to bend you. I'm here to bend you this morning. That there would be a generation that would be so consecrated, that would be so attuned to the voice and the will of God. And a prayer of repentance saying, God, tear down my, my idols. Holy Spirit, would you show me, is there some place in my heart where I've trusted in power, comfort, approval, or control? Would you highlight that, God? I, I, I know that the one with clean hands and a pure heart is the one who does not trust in an idol. God, have I been trusting in an idol? And it's the mercy and the grace of God that exposes our deep-seated idols. Oh, he just says, I want to sit upon the throne of your heart. That there would be no other thrones. Come on, in Revelation 4, there's one throne. In your heart, God longs for there to be one throne. He wants to be the one seated on the throne in your heart. So God, would you dethrone idols that have taken up residence? Would you dethrone powers and principalities, God, that have been oppressing and have been pushing? Oh, Lord, would you be enthroned in our hearts? And then a prayer of pursuit, God, we just say this morning that we will not let you go until you bless us. We will not let you go until you give us the gift of yourself. We will not let you go without seeing a fresh glimpse of your beauty and your glory. We will not let you go. We will not let you go. Lord, that's our prayer. So would you raise up in this house, Lord, a desperation, a pursuit of you. Like never before that it would spring up like we, like we sang earlier, like rivers in the desert, that it would spring up. So right now, Lord, would you, would you touch us? Holy Spirit, would you touch us? Would you fill us this morning? And would you raise up a consecrated people in this place? Jesus, for the glory and the fame and the renown of your name in the earth. Jesus' name, amen. That was so good, wasn't it? If that resonates, just just put a yes in your heart. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fear of the Lord. And we talked about how the fear of the Lord will not let you live on the fence. And so, Lord, this morning, we just, as a church community, I just feel like this is a corporate word, too. Like, as a church, we just, we say yes to walking in consecration, being set apart for you, Lord. We give everything. We give all of our, all of our affection and attention and worship, Lord. We give all of the plans and the vision and the things that you are establishing in this house, we give it to you and we say we're, we're going to be set apart with clean hands and a pure heart. Because you've called us to be a, a light in the darkness. You've called us to be a lamp on a hill. So we just thank you for that, Lord. And let's just say yes. Yes, Lord. 
just say yes.